Hello again, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, where I try in my humble and stumbling fashion to bring the truth of Christ crucified to the ministry and to the life and to the everyday existence we have as his people. And today I want to think about pragmatism. It's a subject that's on many people's minds because we have lots of pragmatic decisions to make as churches and as fellowships over the next several months. Many of us are thinking about how to restart church, what to discontinue, what perhaps to create from scratch when we come back together again uh, post-COVID. And as we do that, we're faced with pragmatism, with the idea that certain decisions or certain actions we might take ought to be judged on the basis of their results. That's what pragmatism really is. It's the view that a course of action is best evaluated by not some external rule or ideology, but according to its consequences, according to how well it works. And pragmatism is something that we can't avoid. We have to think about the consequences of our actions, and we have to think about how practical a certain proposal is. But we're also uneasy about pragmatism, and I guess rightly so, because we feel like we want to be driven by principle and by theology, not just by what works. But then again, we do want to do stuff that works. I've actually got a good Christian friend in ministry, Phil, and Phil's nickname in our circles, I always call him this anyway, is Pragmatic Phil. And it's a funny nickname for a couple of reasons. It's it's funny because it comes from a Sydney Morning Herald article that came out late last year that described him in this way. But it's funny because Phil is actually anything but a pragmatist. It's a bit like why Bluey is a funny nickname for a redhead in Australian vernacular. And anyone who knows Phil knows that he's actually one of the more principled pastors you'll ever meet. And so Pragmatic Phil is what we love to call him. And that's the normal way we sort of think about these things, really, that there are people who are principle-driven, and then there are the pragmatists. And we kind of feel that you know, the first sort of people, the principle-driven people, are kind of the purists, the theological kind of driven guys um, who are admirable for sticking to the Bible's principles. And the pragmatists, well, they get stuff done and they tend to be often more successful, but we're a bit kind of dubious as to whether they're a bit of a sellout by just doing what works. And so we see these two things as sort of opposites or as forces to be balanced in some way. There are the principles, and then there's the pragmatics. There's the urgent impulse we all feel just to do whatever works and is going to be effective. But there's the nagging voice in our heads that says, well, you should be driven by biblical principle, not just by what works. And so it's common to kind of try and solve this dilemma by speaking of principled pragmatism as a kind of ideal middle way or solution to take an approach that acknowledges the necessity of, of thinking pragmatically at various points about things, but gives due weight all the same to the important biblical principles that should discipline or control our sometimes rampant pragmatic impulses. And so we have principled pragmatism, a pragmatism that has its wings clipped and its sort of impulses controlled by biblical principle. And I think this is a pretty good way of thinking about it, all in all. But I'd like to suggest a slightly different angle in today's post for thinking about pragmatism and pragmatic decision-making. 
And I hope it's one that might be useful as we emerge from the chrysalis of, of our coronavirus lives and as churches face a whole bunch of decisions about what we should do next. You see, the common principled pragmatism approach assumes that pragmatism is principle-free, that it requires principles to be added to it, to discipline it or control it or stop it from running rampant. And this is how pragmatism likes to market itself as well. Pragmatism says, never mind your fancy theological principles and your purest approach to theory and the Bible. I'm really about smart, practical solutions that actually get results. However, it seems to me that all pragmatism is in fact deeply principled. It likes to pretend that it's not. But in fact it is. Pragmatism has all kinds of principles that underlie it and that are expressed within it, but are not stated. And for those who are interested, most forms of consequentialist or utilitarian ethics are like this. They pretend to be not principled or not based on some absolute rule, but in fact they contain all kinds of principles that are hidden or smuggled in in the argument. And so I'd like to, in this post, bring some of pragmatism's principles to the surface and take a look at them, shine the light of day on them or, or the light of scripture on them. And hopefully in doing so, to be able to think a little bit more usefully and helpfully about pragmatism and how to use it and how to navigate it. So the hidden principles of pragmatism, what are they? Well, the first is a general underlying principle that the world we're operating in has a rational order to it where effect follows cause in a predictable way so that it's actually possible to devise actions and make decisions and plans that bring about certain predictable results. Pragmatism assumes that this is the case, that the world we're operating in is an ordered field of action. And this is a reasonable assumption. I mean, it certainly aligns with our experience, doesn't it? That the world is a place where certain things follow other things, kind of predictably. And it also fits with the Bible's teaching as well, that the world was created in God's wisdom to be a good and orderly place. However, the Bible also teaches that as a result of sin and of God's judgment against sin, the created world we live in is a disordered field of action as well, that it's subjected to futility and frustration and decay and death, that hard work, the working of the ground, it produces not only bread and plants and food, it also produces thorns and thistles, that, that although the world is a rationally predictable kind of ordered place, it's also a disordered, dysfunctional place, a fallen place. And so we need to recognise that cause does not always lead to effect in our fallen, sinful, distorted, messed up, broken world. So that's the first principle of pragmatism that we need to maybe rethink a little bit or modify in light of what the Bible teaches about its principles. But what about the second principle of pragmatism? Following on from this, it really is that we as humans have the knowledge and mental power to master this rationally ordered world and habitat we're in and to bend it to our will, that we are smart enough to figure out the lines of cause and effect and to come up with solutions that work. 
And once again, this is consistent with our experience and with what the Bible teaches up to a point. Uh, mankind is indeed gifted with powers, powers to keep and to work the garden, as Genesis 2 puts it. We are able to acquire wisdom to master the ways of life in the world. You think of the book of Proverbs and all that it says in this regard, or the stunning achievements of technology that are talked about in Job, as in Job 28. And it's true in our experience, and it's true in Christian ministry as well. It's possible to observe the effects and outcomes of certain actions or, or approaches that we have, and to notice and observe which ones tend to be more successful than others, and to improve the way we do things, to come up with better and more effective ways of doing the various things we're trying to do. And so this is true enough, this second principle of pragmatism, that we do have an ability as humans to navigate our world and figure it out. But of course, the Bible also acknowledges that there are profound limitations to this, that there are profound limitations to human wisdom. Uh, there is Proverbs, but there's also Ecclesiastes. We are very limited at one level by our finitude, by the fact that we're finite creatures. We just don't have the capacity to know and comprehend the whole vast order of the world, all the different factors and variables that go together to produce different outcomes. We like to pretend that we do, but of course we don't. And all the more so when the kind of outcomes we're seeking to predict involve people, people who are so complex in their thinking and attitudes and actions and motives. We're much more limited in our ability to figure out the world and figure out what practical consequences will in fact follow from an action. We're much less able to do this than we think. And we can't see the whole. We can't see the whole picture in its complexity and in its overall purpose because we're part of it. And we can't see ourselves. That's the other interesting factor. That we can't stand outside ourselves and see ourselves as part of this really complex, interconnected whole. And so... Humans are finite in that sense. We can't see the whole picture. And we're also limited by our warped and fallen minds. Our minds are not only limited, they also malfunction. They're also twisted out of shape by our sinful desires. Our minds are built on a faulty foundation, you might say, that, that we are God and that God is not. And so the whole structure tends to be rickety and misshapen and kind of fantastical. Uh, we, we build this structure in our heads of what the world is like and what we are like that is, is all over the place. Uh, as Romans 1 kind of puts it, our minds get darkened and we end up getting things completely back the front. And so we aren't nearly as clever or as objective as we think we are in figuring out the order of the world and what consequences follow from what actions. And so it's not only impossible for us to predict all the effects and outcomes that flow from our actions, but we have this perverse, inbuilt tendency to interpret those outcomes in a way that justifies our actions anyway. All of this should lead us to a profound humility about our pragmatic decision-making. We should seriously modify and limit this second principle of pragmatism. We should be aware that we're not able to make predictions and figure out practical consequences nearly as well as we think we can. Our attitude towards our ability to figure out the world and its consequences should match our sinfulness and our finitude before God, and it should match the, the vast 
fallen complexity of the creation that we're part of. Well, that's a second principle of pragmatism that we need to examine and bring to the surface and modify in light of what the Bible says. But there's a third principle as well. The third principle of pragmatism is that the methods we use are largely neutral and can be experimented with and kind of interchanged with each other in order to achieve the best practical consequences. And that's kind of how pragmatism works. You keep trying different things and substituting different methods and, and actions in order to keep producing until you find the best result, until you find the combination that produces the best result. And this has a truth to it as well, doesn't it? Some methodological actions are neutral. You can kind of interchange them and muck around with them and experiment with them and there's no great consequence or no great moral uh, wrongness or evil or goodness or rightness involved in doing so. So, for example, using a microphone to speak to a crowd, it's, it's a fairly neutral technological choice. It's about activity and technique, not so much about what's good or, or what's bad. And so we can see what produces the best results and make our decisions accordingly. And so I suppose in Christian speak, we can say that we could find out which actions are most helpful in certain circumstances. And so, for example, it would be helpful to use a microphone if we were speaking to a crowd of 200 people and wanting them to hear us. Uh, and unless we were George Whitfield or someone like that had a wonderful big booming voice where that didn't make any difference. But then again, if we were in a small group in a house of five or six having a, a time of Bible study and prayer, using a microphone would be weird and would actually probably go against the practical good outcome for that group. So there is a, this principle of pragmatism does have a truth to it as well, that some of our methods are neutral in their kind of essence and can be kind of experimented with. But in this case, the principles of pragmatism actually start to clash a little more noticeably with the principles of Scripture. Because we live in a good created world, a world created by a good God, where many actions are morally significant in themselves, because God has ordered them to be so. He has made them to be so. And this is why, for example, to state the obvious, that any form of deception or misrepresentation or bait-and-switch in gospel ministry is just not acceptable. And Paul makes that very clear in the first few chapters of 2 Corinthians. Only the plain, honest, straightforward, untampered with proclamation of the word of God in Christ is worthy of this new ministry that Paul is doing, this glorious ministry of the new covenant. And so we should only ever use quality materials and good methods in our ministries even though we might be sorely tempted sometimes in our finitude and in our haste to do otherwise, to use what Paul elsewhere calls wood, hay and stubble in ministry. And sometimes using wood, hay and stubble feels convenient, uh, and sometimes we actually think that they'll yield good short-term results. But to use poor materials, bad materials, the wrong materials, is a serious mistake in Christian ministry for which we will pay in judgment, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. And so this third principle of pragmatism, that methods are largely neutral and that we can just interchange them and experiment with them, needs to be seriously modified in light of the principles of Scripture, that there are some methods that are given to us and that we should use and some that we should not. 
And this brings us to the fourth principle and final one that I'll talk about today, and perhaps the most important one to bring out into the open and to examine. And that's the question of what in fact is a good result. Pragmatism assumes that good results, or, or what works, are self-evident judgments that you don't have to examine that of course you know what a good result is and that measuring these good results will be relatively straightforward, whereas neither of these is the case. The goodness of any particular result or outcome is a value judgment. It's based on some principle or other of goodness. Now, pragmatism doesn't openly acknowledge these principles, but it has them all the same. Every time a pragmatist says that this would be a good result or a good outcome, they are revealing an unstated vision of what constitutes good, of what a good practical consequence in fact is, one that justifies the various actions that are undertaken to achieve it. But who's to say whether this particular one that the pragmatist has chosen is indeed the good outcome we should be after, or the best outcome we should be after? And the more general we make that outcome, say, Christian growth or God's glory or even happiness, the more difficult it is really to assess whether we've actually ever achieved it or not, or whether any particular action will achieve it or not. And so whenever we approach any particular ministry plan or decision with a view to its practical consequences, that is, when we think pragmatically, we should always ask, what is the good outcome that we're aiming at here? What is the good outcome that is implicit in the plan that we're considering? And how does that outcome relate to the various purposes and outcomes that God has revealed for Christian ministry in Scripture? How does it relate to his priorities and his purposes? Does God have a more important outcome for us to pursue in this instance? Or perhaps, as is more often the case, are we neglecting or deprioritizing an outcome that God considers vital in favor of one that we think is terribly important? And such questions can only really be answered by apprenticing ourselves to Scripture, as I put it in an earlier episode, of learning to think like the Bible does, of following the apostolic trains of thought about ministry, about God's purposes for ministry, about what's important, about what we should be aiming at and how we should be aiming at it, and reframing our outcomes and goals and methods accordingly. What all this means in practice is that whenever we do think pragmatically about what we're going to do next, whether that's in life or in ministry and church life post-COVID-19, we should always try to bring our principles to the surface and reflect on them. And reflect on them, of course, in the light of Scripture and its principles. Don't assume that pragmatism doesn't have any principles and that we're just doing what's effective. Bring the principles of pragmatism that you're operating on to the surface and examine them in the light of day, in the light of scripture. Ask yourself, do we have the appropriate level of confidence and humility about the predictability of the world and our own capacity to navigate it and to make wise judgments? What are the outcomes or purposes that we're seeking in this venture, implicitly or explicitly? And how do they relate to the various purposes that God has for us and for his church and for our ministries? And how should we judge the methods and materials we're using against God's directions for both? Are these neutral things that we're just interchanging at the moment? Or are there things that we should be doing that we have to do and must prioritize because God has made them so? And this, of course, raises the question... What are God's essential purposes for Christian ministry? 
that ought to drive our priorities and our purposes? And what are the essential methods and materials that he wants us to use that should shape and drive whatever materials and methods and actions we take? Well, those are really huge questions, and I've gone on for too long already in this episode, and so I'll return to those subjects in the coming weeks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little reflection on pragmatism and its hidden principles. My mate Al Stewart has a good one-liner about pragmatism. The problem with pragmatism, he says, is that it doesn't work. And what he means by that is that unreflective pragmatic ministry, pragmatism that keeps its principles hidden, it almost always focuses on the short term, on short term visible measurable outcomes like attendance or budget or conversions or something like that, and then adopts methods that are meant to achieve those short term things. And that doing this actually prevents you from achieving the real outcomes that God wants for Christian ministry, such as to present all of his people mature before him on the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, a short-term, unprincipled, unaware pragmatism can actually stop you from doing the very thing and achieving the very consequence that Christian ministry is meant to achieve. Sometimes pragmatism, the problem is, it just doesn't work, says Al Stewart. I, I like that way of thinking about it as well. Today's episode has been one of those ones that I suspect might be easier to read than to listen to. There's some decently complicated ideas and philosophical thoughts in today's episode that you might find more convenient to read and reread and think about in text form rather than just on this podcast. If you want to do that for this or any episode, just to go across to the website, to thepainfultruth.substack.com, and you'll find the text version of this episode, and you can read it uh, there at any time. Of course, if you subscribe, uh, and you can do that in the same place, just sign up your name for the uh, regular email. It comes out every week and it's free then you'll get that text delivered to your inbox every week, as well as the link just to press play and listen, if you'd like to do that. My friends at the Gospel Coalition Australia have approached me recently and have agreed with me, or they've offered to, and I've accepted to repost The Painful Truth on their website over the next several weeks until the end of July. And I think this is a very nice idea, and I'm very grateful to be partnering with them in this. And so I'm going to hold off for just a few more weeks in launching the paid version of The Painful Truth that I've talked about in previous episodes. Stay tuned for a little bit more on that in the near future. Well, I think that's all that I need to say for today. Thanks again for listening, and don't be afraid and don't hesitate to get in touch by email or via the comment section on the website. I really enjoy interacting with you in doing that, so get on to it. I'm Tony Payne. Thanks so much again for being with me on The Painful Truth today. Bye for now.